Hello everyone, it's Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. Before we get started with part two of our conversation on our favorite NFL quarterbacks of the Gen X era, I wanted to take some time to thank you, the listeners, for us hitting a little milestone in our podcast as we just cleared over a thousand views for the first time. So uh, we say thank you a lot and we mean it. We're very appreciative of all the listeners that we have from all walks of life, all around the globe, all across the country in the United States. Can't thank you enough for just kind of sharing an interest in what Sean and I love to talk about, which is, you know, the era that we love to talk about the most, which is the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So part two of our talk on NFL quarterbacks in the Gen X era, Sean's going to run through his uh, honorable mentions and then his number one, and then we'll also throw some names out there that maybe you haven't thought of in a while if you're a football fan. Hopefully, if you're not a huge fan of football, maybe we educated you just a little bit. We tried not to take too deep of a dive into uh, you know the sports talk. I know that a lot of our listeners, we like to talk music and movies and TV, uh, but Sean and I do love sports, and you can't deny that sports was a very big part of the Gen X era. So sit back and enjoy as we start up with uh, Sean's honorable mentions and then his all-time top quarterback of the Gen X era. And we will talk to you soon here on Gen X Playback. Thanks. So I'll go to my honorable mentions and we'll leave number one. My first honorable mention, yeah, I got to have a Philadelphia Eagle on there. And I'm going to have Randall Cunningham. Because Randall Cunningham really set the tone for what we see from the NFL quarterback today. The ability to run, you know, we talked, I talked about Steve Young and, and, you know, we have scramblers like Roger Stahlbeck. Sure. John Elway absolutely could move around, but nobody could do what Randall Cunningham did when he first came into the league. It's really a shame that, uh, because he was a second round pick out of UNLV. Yep. Just so immensely physically gifted. And then Randall Cunningham towards the end of his career became a more studious player. Mm-hmm. And it's you just kind of wonder, what if? What if he would have been a little bit more like Jim McMahon when he was earlier in his career, like a, a guy who was a gym rat who had to study film? There's a, there's a famous story about Eagles had a quarterback's coach, and they, they kept hiring these quarterback's coaches because none of them would, could get along with Randall. And they even brought in... Uh, you know, some pretty big name guys to try and work with him. And I think it was Ted Marchabroda. Yeah. He sent some Randall home with some film to watch, game film to watch. And he actually hid a piece of tape inside the reel so that when <laughs> the when the film would roll, the piece of tape would fall out. And that was how they knew whether or not he watched the game film. And it said, of course, you know, Randall would bring it back uh, Monday morning and and Ted would Ted said, "Did you watch the film?" And Randall said, "Of course I did." And Ted would run the film, and the piece of paper come right out, and he knew that he wasn't watching film. And, right. Uh, but what a fun! What a that's still to this day my favorite era of football. We had the Eagles defense on one side, and then you had Randall just pulling stuff out of his hat. I mean, the to me one of my favorite plays of all time is. Monday night against the New York Giants 
and he's running towards the sideline. I believe it was Pepper Johnson. Harry, Harry Carson. Harry was it okay? Carl Banks. Was it, oh, was it Carl yeah, Banks? It was okay. Carl Banks. Oh, so we just named all three linemen. Yeah, for the Giants. Carl Banks, LT in there as well. Carl Banks is getting ready, and he lays a hit on Randall. And Randall kind of like bends in two, but he doesn't go down. And he somehow stays inbound, go, prevents himself from falling down, and then he fires a touchdown pass to Jimmy Giles on a, on a dime yeah. in the corner of the end zone. And to me, that's like, that was the quintessential Randall Cunningham play when he's on. Nobody could stop it. So my memory of that was I was um, out in Kansas. I was going to, to college out there, and I was in the laundry. I was doing my laundry on a Monday night because it was the only place where I, I there was a TV that I could watch that had Monday night football. Okay. So I was down in the basement where doing my laundry, and I saw that play and just like just jumping up and down and screaming. And you know, you think about, and they've talked about this, the NFC East – in the 80s, was hands down the best division in football. Mm -hmm. Look at all the Super Bowl champions that came from the NFC East, none of which were the Eagles. Everybody but the Eagles. But yet the Eagles were the team that nobody wanted to play because, uh, you know, Randall could beat you offensively. I, I think back to 1989, he signs what was then the biggest contract in NFL history at that point. And then he walks out and against a really good Washington team, mm -hmm throws four touchdowns on their field and beats them like 42 to 39. And of course that, you know, the Eagles, those were the Eagles under Buddy Ryan and, and fun wild bunch where, you know, Buddy, Buddy used to give Randall complete freedom because he, he had Reggie White on defense and Seth Joyner and Clyde Simmons and, and Jerome Brown and, and, you know, Wes Hopkins and, and, just just loaded on defense an all time defense. And he didn't care about offense. Well, Buddy, Famously told Randall, yeah, just give me six good plays yeah. a game. Just run around, make six plays. I, I don't care what else you do. Just make six plays. He had complete uh, belief in his in his defense, and uh, but still, when Randall did start to get some weapons there, where he had Keith Jackson, you know, he had Mike Quick early in his career, and Mike ended up playing into I think nineteen eighty eight was his last year, um, and then they ended up getting uh, Calvin Williams and Fred Barnett. There was, uh, you know, they had some weapons. The one thing they could never do was run the football under under Randall Cunningham. They just, they never had that running back that could give him a compliment. And he kind of felt, he kind of had to go out there and do it all. Uh, but they did have some uh, good receivers. Chris Carter was even there early in his he career. He was, yeah. So there was, there was definitely talent on the outside. But the knock against the Eagles then was they couldn't manage the clock. They couldn't control the ball because they had no running game. And it wasn't for trying. I mean, they had uh, you know guys like Keith Byers and uh, Keith Sherman. They, mm -hmm. they tried it for a little bit. Um, so, but here's an example of two different coaching philosophies where you know Buddy Ryan didn't care. He did not care about what the quarterback did. Didn't care. He was only interested in defense. And then you have a coach like Chuck Knoll, who whether Terry Bradshaw liked it or not, he was going to make him learn a system and he was going to develop him into a quarterback. I think a lot of physically gifted players like i talked about john elway sure where you give them too much freedom it's well they like it it's not good for them in the long run right and as a result randall he actually needed to leave football for a year before he grew up got his act together came back into the nfl and then he really blossomed under the, when he went to the minnesota vikings i think i think your list though provides a lot like your top 10 list provide some really good examples of guys who persevered. Yeah. 
you know, we, we mentioned Bradshaw, we mentioned Steve Young. You know, these, these are guys who very easily could have packed it in or just gone to some wasteland of a team and, you know, made money but never would have left a legacy. And I think that's what really separated, you know, the average to good players to, to the elite to, mm-hmm. to, to make this list. Yeah, I kind of have that have that drive and perseverance. All right, so that's you know Randall's on my list, but I got I have another kind of eagle on my list. My next quarterback is Jim McMahon, the punky QB known as McMahon from the uh, Super Bowl Shuffle song, known mostly to fans from what his time where he went to the Super Bowl with the Chicago Bears. But he did come to the Eagles in the early nineties, oh. nineteen ninety one. He had a very good season with the Eagles. He is. In a lot of ways, when you think of the 1980s and you want to visualize the celebrity quarterback, it was Jim McMahon with with the Chicago Bears. Absolutely. And he, coming out of college, a total misfit at BYU. Yeah, right. Uh, I yeah. don't know how whatever made him decide to go and play under Lavelle Edwards well, there. Well, you know, he, he needed, he, you know, it's Lavelle Edwards could develop quarterbacks. He was a passing guru. Yeah. He wanted to throw the ball and, he, you know, he, he he went there for football. Yeah. Uh, had a great college career and got off to a great start as a pro, but he had such a hard-nosed way of playing that he just couldn't stay healthy. He, he, because he was such a tough guy, right? His, his teammates loved him. His, his offensive linemen loved him because he was one of them. He'd headbutt his offensive linemen. His, the defensive players on the Bears, who probably didn't like many offensive players, they loved him because he was one of them. Yeah. He was a tough guy. And I think it, I think it goes. You really need to point out that another thing that evolved over the Gen X era were the fields. Think about the concrete turf mm-hmm. that most of these teams had to play on in the 1980s: Eagles, Bears, Giants, Steelers, Steelers. I mean, we're talking about some Bengals. of the worst fields that you could possibly try and play sports on, especially if you were on one of those multi-purpose fields you know like the in pittsburgh and philadelphia and cincinnati all had the same cookie cutter st louis you know had the same cookie cutter stating with the hard surface and the terrible astroturf at least at least in the 90s it did start the new stadiums started to evolve into grass right and i think that helped prolong careers especially for quarterbacks because you know quarterbacks if you got hit um you know, there. How many times did we watch Ron Jaworski just get crushed and land on that hard astroturf at Veteran Stadium with the full weight of Lawrence Taylor on top of him? You know, two hundred sixty pound yeah. guy just come crashing down. And uh, you know, we always used to marvel at a guy getting up after taking a beating like that. Well, you know, you talk about Lawrence Taylor, and Scott knows this, but um, you know. He- He's sacked so many quarterbacks. Well, he sacked Ron Jaworski more than any other quarterback in his career. I think we saw every one of them, yeah. And the thing is with Ron Jaworski, what's amazing to me is because he still does local television and how lucid he is for how many times he just got rammed into that concrete turf. Well, you know, Sean will remember uh, back in 1992. I know where you're going. We got to see him at a celebrity golf tournament. Mike Schmidt had Coolest a celebrity. Coolest dude ever. Such a nice guy. Awesome. Super friendly. I mean, he knew how to uh, just make you feel like, like you're just talking, hanging out with a regular guy. Well, and Scott's leaving out my favorite part of the story is the fact that we, we're at this 
golf tournament, and he and I, we got lost a little bit. We did. We wandered up the wrong way on the fairway. We did. On a golf course. And, you know, some of the, 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 the athletes that were playing, they were serious about playing golf that day. And Jaworski could have been a jerk to us. Two, two knuckleheads in their early 20s wandering up a golf course on the fairway as they're looking to tee off. Well, remember, it was either right before or right after uh, we saw Jaworski was when John Spagnola, the former tight end of the Eagles, ran me over. Yeah. Uh, because he was looking one way, I was looking the other way. We went into each other. I'm five foot eight. Spagnola is six foot six. You know, take your guess as to who goes down to the ground. Yeah. So he knocks me down, and uh, he he like he looks down. And he goes, "Oh, hey, I'm really sorry." And I look up. I go, "You're John Spagnola." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but so we're, we we wander up. Like I said, we shouldn't be there, and we weren't trying to do it, but we just happened to get get the right. wrong place. And he just was so nice. Just hey guys, how's it going? You enjoying yourself today? Yeah. And he engaged us in conversation. He did. Yeah. So. You pro athletes out there listen to this podcast. Just be nice to some of those kids, those dumb kids, and they will love you forever. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyways, but it's not John. We're not talking about Ron Jaworski, you know, J- Jim McMahon. I know. And, you know, these are my honorable mansions, so we don't spend as much time on them. But he was just, just love the, the guy's personality. Just love the toughness. He he was in, in commercials. You know, I remember him doing Honda scooter commercials. And he, he was the cool guy with the sunglasses, though. You know, that was because he had eye issues. But we didn't know that back then. For all of his bravado, though, with, with the spiky hair yeah. and the commercials and the sunglasses, really kind of hid the fact that this was a super smart football player. Yeah. Some guys are just born to play a position, to play an instrument. It's like they can just look at it and almost diagnose it like a computer. And Jim McMahon had that kind of a brain for football. He comes to the Eagles, backs up Randall Cunningham. In game one of the 1991 season, Randall Cunningham gets his knee blown out by the Packers uh, defensive lineman. So Jim McMahon has to come in and with virtually no arm strength left, almost wills them into the playoffs. Unfortunately, his body just gave out on him. Uh, after they played, I think it was the Cleveland Browns, he throws like three or four touchdowns to beat Bernie Kosar, and and, and that was it. After that, he, his, he was done. He was done for the year. But he almost got the Eagles into the playoffs that year on nothing. I right. mean, other than his other than his head and his smarts. Right, Jim. Still, you're still loved here, but amongst Eagles fans. So um, the the third honorable mention that I have another another guy that I would consider a cool guy, Kenny the Snake Stabler from the Oakland. I'm glad Raiders. you mentioned that because he was on my list. Too. I I like the Snake. He was he he was he was so cool. One of the things that I I, I love to read books about, whether it's athletes or musicians. Kind of like the 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 base basis of this of this podcast, and I have a book on the snake. Oh, really? And it's it's very it's a very interesting read. In that Stabler, you would never have guessed that he came from such a tough program in Alabama and played for Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant said to the very end of his coaching career. Kenny Stabler was the best quarterback that ever played for him. They say he was it was so incredibly accurate. And, you know, in the era that he played, as we keep saying all the time, you know, the seventies was a very difficult time to play football. And 
you know, Ken Stabler, the hallmark, I think, is just the fact that he could just place the ball wherever he wanted. He was this this left-handed quarterback with a lot of moxie. You know, he's at Alabama, and, you know, he's, he's this clean-cut-looking kid. He gets to the, to the wild Oakland Raiders, and he's the perfect quarterback for that wild bunch that they had. You know, he had the long hair and the beard and kind of, you know, they, they resembled kind of a biker gang, and he was like, you know, the, the guy that ran the controls. Well, he had, to, he had to back up a guy by the name of Daryl LaMonica. I mean, Daryl LaMonica took the Raiders to their first Super Bowl in the 60s, and they ended up losing, you know, the, the Raiders lost to the Packers. That was in Super Bowl II. Mm-hmm. So Stabler doesn't get the starting job until he's 28 years old, which to me is remarkable that a guy ends up having, uh, you know, such a well-thought-of career pretty much from the age of, in his late 20s, to the end of his career in a plane until he was 39. So you're not talking about a very long window here. Right. But even though the Raiders won the Super Bowl after Stabler left the team, mm-hmm. in many ways, he really was the heart and soul of the seventies Raiders under John Madden. And they were just, it's such a shame that this, that for the Raiders, at least that they had to compete against the Steelers and the Miami dolphins. Right. It was the Dolphins early on, and then the Steelers later. Otherwise, you the, the team of the decade would have been the Oakland Raiders, right? And that would have been centered right around Ken Stabler, right? And and you know Ken Stabler wins a Super Bowl, so you know if he has two Super Bowl wins, three Super Bowl wins, he's he's you know up in my top ten, but he's not. So, but we'll move on to my final honorable mention, and this is a player that I saw kind of at the tail end of his career, uh, and that was Fran Tarkenton. So Fran was somebody, well, I put him on the list just because he was so different from what was happening at the time. You know, the the standard quarterback, and you'll remember this quarterback, uh, Steve Barkowski. Steve Barkowski played for the Atlanta Falcons, and he was a statue. And that's what you wanted in, in the NFL in the 1970s, a big, tall quarterback who couldn't run at all but had a gun for an arm. And that's what most teams had. Yeah, in in an era of guys who could sling the football, Barkowski was the guy who was known to have the strongest arm in the league at the time. Now Tarkenton, from my memory, uh, ran probably too much. You know, he was he's kind of uncontrollable. He was always scrambling. He wasn't. Shit, yeah, I think he when he retired, he was the all time leading rusher among yes. quarterbacks. So he did go for some forward yards. But I I just remember him, and I'm really little at the time, and he's on my list just because. Of the quarterbacks that from the seventies, whether it's Ken Stabler or Stallback or you know Bradshaw, those are the quarterbacks that really there's I saw them play. Right, and so I did see Fran Tarkenton. I think I knew him a little more as a broadcaster later on. He kind of when, sure. when he got out out of uh, playing, but I just remember him just scrambling around and around on Monday Night Football. Well, he ended up going the year after he retired is when ABC started that show, That's Incredible. Mm-hmm. And he was, that's what I remember. I don't remember <laughs> Fran Tarkenton, the football player. You probably never saw him play. I never did. Um, I just remember people making a big deal about him. And when you, what we have today in the NFL, where you need a mobile quarterback. You know, Tom Brady, yes, sure, he wasn't mobile. He's the greatest of all time. He got away with it. But for the most part, what we're seeing now with like Jalen Hurts, with the Eagles and Patrick Mahomes, the, the the two starting quarterbacks in Sunday's Super Bowl, you see very mobile quarterbacks, and you know you kind of needed a pioneer like a Fran Tarkenton to kind of show that yes, this guy can be successful moving around. Yeah, and the uh, 
the Vikings ended up going to several Super Bowls under Tarkenton, never won. Exactly. But the NFC, I would I would say in the away from the Cowboys, who won two Super Bowls in the seventies, away from the Cowboys, the AFC was clearly the dominant uh, conference in the league at that time. Right. So that takes me to number one on my list. And my brother asked me a while ago, you know, a few moments ago, who, what quarterback would I want to lead my team down there if the game was on the line, seconds are running down, I need a touchdown. Number one on my list, Joe Montana is the quarterback that I would pick because I saw him do it. Yes. Yeah. Greatest quarterback that's not Tom Brady. I would take him over Tom Brady. And I know that a lot of people would say, well, Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. And the numbers bear that out. But like, and that's why I kind of use the, if I got to, if I got to get into the end zone yeah, and I need one quarterback, if I need to get into the end zone and there's one quarterback in the league currently, it's Patrick Mahomes. It is not Tom Brady. Tom Brady is one of those guys that I think could get you in the field, field goal position. But if you need to get into the end zone and win a game, uh, for me, hands down, it's Joe Montana. Sure. He could, uh, Joe Montana had the ability to elevate the play of players around him. And it's just been part of so many big moments in football history. I mean, he is the landscape of really the, the 49ers are the landscape of the 1980s mm-hmm. under Bill Walsh and then later George Seifert. In many ways, uh, Joe Montana changed the quarterback position forever. You know, it instead of having the, you know, the big arm guys. Well, now we have Joe Montana. Joe Montana has a, a good arm, a good enough arm. You know, sure. He he was. What, what, did he go in the third or fourth round? He was third round. Okay, so here you have this guy that has a storied career at Notre Dame. Leads Notre Dame to many wins, many comeback victories, national championships. Still can't go in the first round. Why? Because Joe doesn't have the measurables. He's not the tallest quarterback. He's not the most athletic. He doesn't have a big arm. All he understands is how to read a defense in a split second and has this 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 incredible coolness under pressure. He he gets the ball where it needs to go. He he lands with probably the perfect coach. Yeah. And I I I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Any other coach at in that era would have ruined him. They they he does he even make a roster? Maybe he's a backup. Maybe, maybe he's a career backup for somebody. But um, Bill Walsh had this idea of this offense that he wanted to run, and it becomes the West Coast offense. Well, he had done it. Cincinnati. With with great success. With Ken in, Anderson with in Cincinnati. Ken, yeah, because the uh, Paul Brown was the head coach of the Bengals because they started the franchise for Brown after he got dismissed in Cleveland. Obviously, the Cleveland Browns are named after him. Mm-hmm. So the NFL gives him a franchise. He is the owner-coach, and he brings in this offensive guru by the name of Bill Walsh. And uh, Bill Ra- Bill Walsh starts to – and he said it was a, a complete fluke with how they came up with the what ended up being called the West Coast offense. But he said – they had no running game. Their, their starting running back got hurt. So this was the only way that they could move the ball. And they had a quarterback that didn't have a particularly strong arm, but he was accurate. So rather than trying to force him to throw the ball 15, 20 yards downfield, which is what coverage, you did in the NFL at that time, he all of a sudden they start, they found that their, you know, their receivers, the defense was giving them 
these five, six, mm-hmm. seven yard you know receptions because they were playing back on defense. Well, the defenses were like, well, they're not going to keep doing this, but yet they would put together these 12, 15 play drives and score touchdowns on these little chippy passes. And so under uh, Paul Brown in Cincinnati, Bill Walsh starts to develop this system. He doesn't get the job at Cincinnati. They pick the defensive coordinator over him, so he kind of leaves under bad bad terms, but ends up getting this job at San Francisco and then is toying with the idea of, of using it on a permanent basis, even if they have a running game. But then he's kind of brought in with this Joe Montana, and again, it's kind of like, here is the opportunity to see if my system will work. And the NFL being a copycat, uh, you could you could say today's football is based on that that decision right there. Could be. You know, he went from, you know, as Scott said, you know, in the 1970s, it was all about the deep ball. And now suddenly we, it's about the short passing game. And it's it's Joe Montana was the perfect quarterback for Bill Walsh's system. The Probably the greatest mind to ever play the position. I would agree with that. And uh, Montana was a guy who was known in his high school days, in his college days, as not necessarily being the practice player. And Bill Walsh even said when he came in as a rookie that it was, that was the one thing that kind of stood out. It's like, yeah, you know, he's not all in like the Ronnie Lotts of the world. Right. The guys who live and breathe football. But he became that. And he became this perfectionist. It wasn't that he necessarily loved practice, but that Joe Montana was a perfectionist. And that for a guy like Bill Walsh, who everything was about place and time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily about beating somebody else up. It was if if you could outthink your opponent, chances are you're going to win. And that was the way he went at it. And the 49ers, even though they had some pretty nasty defenses, they were always known for being kind of the artistic team of the league, in part because of that of that philosophy by the offense. Yeah, and you know Joe Montana is he he wins four Super Bowls. So here you have somebody that puts up big numbers. He has the stats, and he is the uh, you know wins just like a Terry Bradshaw did. But he uh, he's probably you know regarded uh, you know as more of a complete player. And you know up until Tom Brady, it was unquestionably. Known among those who watch the NFL, that Joe Montana was the greatest quarterback, if not greatest player ever. Right. It's kind of like uh, you know today's debate about you know greatest basketball player of all time, and without getting into specifics or names, you know anybody that's older than us is going to say, "Oh, Jim Brown was the greatest football player of all time, hands down, not even close." But we right. never saw him play. Right. And unfortunately, film doesn't do enough justice to really show what the greatness of a, of a player was. Now, the nice thing about having the ability of YouTube is you can actually go back and watch game clips from television, which is which is pretty cool because you didn't have that in the 60s. So you can go back and you can watch Joe Montana throw four touchdowns against the Eagles uh, at Veterans Stadium to beat them 28-23 to and uh, break our hearts. But um, you could see, you can literally go back and watch the brilliance of a guy like a Montana, and did he have weapons? Absolutely. But but early on with that first Super Bowl team, you know that it was what nineteen eighty one with that team, yeah. and, and that has the famous catch as they're going, 
in the NFC Championship game against the Cowboys. Right. Where he throws it to Dwight Clark. Yep. Dwight Clark's not a superstar. I mean, he's a good player. Had a nice career. Had a nice career, but not, not a superstar. I mean, they they had some decent players around him, but later on, he gets Jerry Rice. You know, later sure. on, he gets uh, Roger Craig. You know, so he gets some big-time weapons down the road. Tom Rathman, you uh-huh. know, jumps out. But early on, it, it was Joe Montana. Right, and then... Uh, having a quarterback like a Montana allowed Walsh to kind of go scout for specific pieces that he felt could complement the uh, the offense that he had at that particular time. Uh, Montana was not known as a guy who could throw a deep pass until Jerry Rice shows up. Now all of a sudden they're taking shots down the field. Mm-hmm. Um, you bring in a guy like a John Taylor, who's now your your kind of your possession receiver. Now he's running the short. So you have not only do you have a, uh, you know, his defenses are starting to back up to stop Jerry Rice. Now you bring in a guy like a John Taylor. All right, now the defense has to pay attention to Taylor, who ended up catching that winning Super Bowl against the Bengals in 1989. Which is when I think of, you know, why I want Joe Montana to lead my team in the closing seconds to score a Super Bowl. He did it in a Super Bowl on that play that you just described to John Taylor. And the thing that always stood out to me was the story that was told about what was in the huddle. In the huddle, And I think it was Randy Cross, the offensive lineman, tells the story that this is tense. You know, this is the, – the, the clock's running down here, and they have to – you know, they, 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 they have to go on this drive. And at some point, cool, calm Joe Montana goes, he goes, uh, is that John Candy over there? <laughs> Standing on the sideline, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's John Candy. It, they're like, what? <laughs> and he's like, but that relaxed them. Yeah. And they all kind of chuckled. And he intentionally did that. Because it just calmed everybody down. Because when you get in those situations, it's easy to choke. Because you sure. let the, me- the 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 moment get to you. And unfortunately for a guy like a Jerry Rice, who was so incredibly good that game, I think he he still may hold the record for yards, reception yards in a Super Bowl, based on that, that Super Bowl there. And mm-hmm. he kind of felt like, even though he was named the MVP, that he got distant away because all the attention went to Joe Montana. And un- unfortunately, I think he's probably correct. Uh, it it does take away how great he was in that game, but it was. But that, that singular that moment, moment yeah. that singular moment of Montana throwing the touchdown to John Taylor, is something that will be lived out, you know, and replayed over and over again as long as the league is in ex- in existence. So, because of you know the pressure of the situation, for me, that may be the the greatest moment in the Super Bowl, you know, at least that I ever saw. For me, the greatest play of all time is the Philly special. Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that's, but that's one-off play. That wasn't to win the game. If that, if that play had been to win, had won the Super Bowl for the Eagles, not just put them up at the half, sure, that's the greatest play ever. It, it's the greatest call, but the greatest moment that I ever saw where two players, well, everybody on the team, because the offensive line has the block, but right. where... One quarterback stands there calmly and just delivers the ball right to John Taylor for the winning touchdown. Amazing. And could have been the culmination of a career right then and there. It was Montana's third Super Bowl. Uh, But if they didn't have an, if people didn't think that they were the team of the decade up to that point, what they did in the Super Bowl the next year against the Denver Broncos and John Elway. Mm hmm. The biggest dismantling, I think, in the history of the league and of the Super Bowl game, fifty-five to ten, 
against a good Denver Bronco team. But that that 1989 uh, 49ers team would, for me, from you're talking about an entire roster, may be the greatest, most talented roster of all time. Right. You compare the 89 team, which was stacked, where where Montana is kind of how we describe what John Elway did at the end of his career. He's much more running the system. And, and he's one of one of many pieces where when they won that first Super Bowl, rest assured, it was mostly Joe Montana. Right. So anyways, that's my list. Those are my, those are my top 10. Those are my honorable mentions. Well, let's go ahead and recap them. All right. So number 10 was Troy Aikman. Um, number nine was Dan Fouts. Number eight, Jim Kelly. Number seven, Steve Young. Number six, Brett Favre. Number five, Terry Bradshaw. Number four, John Elway. Number three, Dan Marino. Number two, Roger Staubach. And my number one quarterback of the Gen X era was Joe Montana. And you know, Sean and I, we followed sports very closely uh, together over the years. Every one of his quarterbacks was on my list as well. Okay. Okay. So, and I thought that might be the case. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was throw out some names that really got forgotten. Um, but it's important, I think, and they were guys that were kind of on the on the on the fringe. Were were players that I really liked to follow. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I liked their style. I liked the way that they played the game. All right. The first one for me that I want to mention is Boomer Esiason. Uh, Boomer Boomer almost made the cut. And Boomer played for the Cincinnati Bengals uh, in the beginning of his career. Ended with the New York Jets. Uh, but when he was with the with the Bengals. They had some up and down years, but there was a stretch of about three or four years where the Bengals were as good as anybody in the NFL. They actually lost to the 49ers in the Super Bowl that we were talking about, but the most valuable player in the league that year was Boomer Esiason. And had Joe Montana not have the the greatest drive in Super Bowl history, Boomer Esiason is a Super Bowl champion. Correct. You know, you're talking about a guy who won an MVP award, went to four Pro Bowls, Boomer had a really good career. I would not be surprised uh, if at some point maybe he sneaks into the Hall of Fame. He's close. Could be. Had he won that Super Bowl, I think he's in. Sure, absolutely. So I think that was the make or break for him. But Boomer was a guy uh, that that I definitely – because there weren't too many left-handed quarterbacks in the league at that time. You, no. You had your occasional, your occasional guys, um, even though I don't throw – uh, you know, I don't play sports left-handed. I am left-handed in everything else I do, and it, it does kind of stand out to me as, as say, "Hey, he's a lefty." And we always, uh, if you're a lefty, you know what I'm talking about because we always identify each other when you see somebody writing, "Hey, you're a lefty." It's just kind of like Jeep, and you know, waving to somebody who's driving a Jeep if you own a Jeep. That oh, that that was part of the charm of Kenny Stabler. Absolutely. I mean, it was the fact that he was this the southpaw. It's like he was this unorthodox quarterback, and so yeah. And Boomer w- fell in that uh, category as well. So he was he was one of my favorites that I that I paid attention to. Another guy, and I mentioned him earlier, was Bernie Kosar. Mm-hmm. Played for the Cleveland Browns. Um, had a really good career, and I Bernie to me was always the defining guy who got the most out of the least. He he got the, he had the best career probably with the least physical tools. But he was such a smart player, kind of like that Jim McMahon-type player. And, man, he came so close to the Super Bowl. Him and Marty Schottenheimer, two years back-to-back, lost out to the Broncos on just the most gut-wrenching plays that you could ever think of. We talked about the drive. Sure. 
with Elway in 1986. But then in 1987, the Browns are winning. They're at the goal line. I, I think it's Leroy Horde has the football. It's Ernest Biner. Ernest Biner. Yeah. Ernest Biner has the football. He's going to cross the end zone and ice the game, and he fumbles the ball. And gives the ball to Elway. Gets it back to Elway, and he goes down and scores another touchdown. Yeah. Um, as an and Eagles, was that Bernie Kosar's fault? No. no. As but as, you know, we talk about heartbreak as Eagles fans. I couldn't imagine being a Browns fan. Uh, yeah, up until just, five years ago when the Eagles finally won a Super Bowl. I mean, they probably were at at the top of the list of of teams that have experienced heartache. And now Cleveland, you know, some fans followed the team when they went to Baltimore and became the Ravens. I, I would imagine most fans of the Browns probably hate the Ravens. Right. And they it took a little while till they got a team back again. But yes, Cleveland, those those fans have suffered long and hard. You know, and Bernie had won a national championship at Miami. Under Howard Schnellenberger, right? When they pulled arguably one of the biggest upsets in a college football championship type game at that particular time when they beat Nebraska. Mm-hmm. In the Orange Bowl, uh, ended up having a really good, solid NFL career. Even though, and I was surprised that he only made one Pro Bowl in his career. But this guy put up pretty decent numbers, right? Um, Very unorthodox. He, he did not look the part. You know, we, you know, I talked about how how Elway was the just the perfect physique and the perfect athlete. That was not Bernie Kosar. But Bernie was one of those guys that didn't throw a lot of interceptions could get on a hot streak and be extremely accurate, but he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to throw the ball too far down the field, but kind of knew his limitations. Kind of weird th- uh, throwing mechanics. It was a three-quarter throwing style. Yeah. 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 And whenever uh, I would go out and get ready for baseball season and me and my buddies would go out and throw the baseball, one of the things we always liked to do was imitate uh, the quarterbacks at the time. So. Okay. We would go out back there like you have a baseball in your hand, but you're trying to pretend that you're a quarterback. So it would be Dan Marino, would be Randall Cunningham. Bernie Kosar was always my personal favorite because you always you know, you gotta you gotta go back, drop back like you have two bad knees, right? And then chuck the ball sidearm as you. But that was always my most. Always favorite. liked him. He seemed like a good guy. So that was one of mine was uh, Bernie Kosar. Um, another guy that I really liked watching because they're. Offense was so much fun was the Houston Oilers and Warren Moon. Uh, Warren is on my sheet with his name crossed off. Yeah, Warren Moon. Warren Moore, Moon, I talk about how um, Terry Bradshaw threw such a pretty pass. Mm-hmm. Warren Moon's got to be a close second because it seemed like the guy threw the perfect style, uh, perfect spiral. And on that run and shoot, he came in. Keep in mind, he was a winning quarterback at Washington University, University of Washington. Did not get a chance to play quarterback, uh, probably because he was black. Didn't get an opportunity to play in the late 70s. Ends up going to the CFL, plays in Edmonton, wins three straight Grey Cup championships, and finally does get his opportunity to play in the NFL and hits the ground running. And then all of a sudden, the Oilers bring in this coach named uh, Jack Pardee and this offensive guru named Mouse Davis. Mouse Davis installs the run-and-shoot offense, and Warren Moon is the perfect quarterback for that type of system that um, Jim Kelly ran in the USL, mm-hmm. USFL for Mouse. But Warren Moon put up big numbers. Uh, it was probably the most prolific passer 
probably in that stretch from like the 1987 through like 1993, I think Warren Moon probably threw for more yards than anybody in the league at that time. And he put up some big numbers with the Vikings as well. Absolutely. Um, but never never came close to a championship. But he did end up uh, getting voted into the Hall of Fame uh, a couple of years ago. And rightfully so. I think, I think he was, unfortunately, a really good player on... Uh, when you look at that 1991 Houston Oilers team and even 1993, it was the 1993 team that so famously had a 35-3 to lead against the Buffalo Bills in the playoffs. And Jim Kelly was out of the game. Frank Reich is the backup for the Bills and leads them to this amazing comeback. It's still the biggest uh, deficit recovery in a playoff game in league history. Up until... Wasn't it overtaken this year in the in the one playoff game? Yes, that's right. Yeah. When Jacksonville ended up beating the uh, Chargers, yeah, right, right. So, yeah, he uh, Warren Moon. Uh, I didn't mention him with my honorable mention because my honorable mentions weren't necessarily about the rankings. It was more about just people that kind of stood out to me. Uh, you know, that might have been influential in a bit of a way. Warren Moon and Troy Aikman went back and forth for me for number ten. Okay, if if I'd expanded my to a top 12 Warren Moon's on it. And to me, in a lot of ways, he was similar to Dan Fouts. So because I had Fouts on there, another quarterback that, you know, put up the big gaudy numbers. Right. And, you know, his he didn't win as much as Fouts. So that's, once again, we calculate wins and with quarterbacks. Sure. And that's that was the deciding factor. And, you know, and Aikman was the biggest, you know, to me, he was one of the biggest winners in the 90s, so that's why he beat out Warren Moon. But Warren Moon definitely was in consideration. And so that was uh, – Warren Moon was definitely a player that I really appreciated, paid attention to. The The next two I'm going to put together because they were Eagles rivals, played in the same era, and uh, both players were really good at one time, you know, a season, probably three or four seasons at a time. But I'm going to talk about Joe Theismann from Washington and Phil Simms from the Giants. Because as much as I hated the Eagles playing against those two guys, they were winners. And So I'll show you my list. You see that name crossed out there? <laughs> I do. <laughs> so Joe Theismann was crossed off. It, it, and I debated going to top 12. If it was top 12, Warman and Joe Theismann were in my top 12. I think, um, you know, Phil Simms, because the Giants were a big – it's so hard. The NFC East in the 1980s, except the Cardinals, when you had the Eagles, Giants, Cowboys, and Washington. Come on, Neil Lomax wasn't wasn't doing it for you back Neil in the Neil Lomax East. had one incredible season in 1984. And I was going to mention that. Okay. He, in 1984, he threw for 4,600 yards, which still to this day, I think, ranks in the top 20. And he did it almost 40 years ago, which is unbelievable. Um for a team that didn't even make the playoffs. But, um, yeah, going getting back to the NFC East, you had the Cowboys, Eagles, Washington, New York Giants. And they were the most dominant teams of, of the 1980s, hands down. Unfortunately, the Eagles didn't get to win a Super Bowl. The Cowboys didn't win a Super Bowl in the 80s either. Um, and they started to, to decline. But the two best teams in the division, in terms of Super Bowls, were Giants and Redskins. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and, yeah. And Theismann did win the MVP 
uh, I think it was 1983, he was actually the league MVP. Uh, and um, the thing I remember about Theismann is, again, you're talking about a guy who kind of would do whatever it took to win. He just had that winning attitude. Played football at Notre Dame. Goes to the Redskins, but he's not the quarterback right away. He's actually the punt returner. He just wanted to play football. So he's your punt returner. That's why he always uh, wore that stupid single bar face mask. mask Because he was the punt returner for, I think, two or three seasons before he got a chance to be the quarterback. Not very, you know, the team wasn't very good until Joe Gibbs arrives. And Joe Gibbs turns the team around. And he sticks with a guy like, like Theismann, who at the time was in his early 30s. Um, but you bring in a, a, a running back like John Riggins mm-hmm. and you start developing your line play, which is very common today. And now you're off and running. And Theismann was a great, uh, probably one of the last real system quarterbacks of his era, you know, the crossover from the seventies to the eighties to bridge that strong running game and defense for, for a team, but he could throw the ball downfield. They had the Smurfs. Remember the Smurfs? Sure. Uh, Charlie Brown and Alvin Garrett and oh, yeah. Art Monk. I'll, yeah, sure. So you know, he was a guy who would take his shots downfield, but he, to me, he was always a winner. He was, and you know, he's you know remembered probably for most people today because of the the famous play where Lawrence Taylor breaks his leg on Monday Night Football, where it it may be the most brutal play I've ever seen on a football field. Yeah, perhaps the most gruesome thing I've I've. Witnessed on I mean, the obviously, field. you know, there's been times where people have been paralyzed, right? But to where you actually see the leg snap, it it I, I can still remember because I was watching at right. the time, and it's 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 an image that you know they keep bringing up all the time, and it, it's they talk about it in the movie The Blind Side, right? About how the importance of that left tackle is because of handling somebody as ferocious as as Lawrence Taylor coming in, which is why I said it amazes me that. That Ron Jaworski is as lucid as what he is because, or, you know, LT did that to him many a time. Right. He didn't break his leg, snap it in two, but it just happened, just just caught Theismann in, in such a way that it's, you know, one of the most famous plays in NFL history. And much like, you know, Sean and I have a high, high regard for Ron Jaworski, we also met Joe Theismann at that very same <laughs> golf tournament. We did. And Joe was a very nice guy incredibly nice very friendly very very much very engaging with the crowd yeah and i i that always stood out to me and i really um that era of athletes to me we didn't i don't know if we got snubbed at any wherever we tried to meet up and talk to somebody i remember you you would go and talk to some athletes like i remember you talked to gary maddox Mm -hmm. but i mean that those that era of athlete was much more approachable i think on average, than than it is today to try and get to, to meet an athlete. Well, the only player, and he wasn't rude, and it's just that the the Hall of Fame Philly pitcher Robin Roberts was playing that day, and we were told Robin's very serious about his golf. Yes, you know, just don't don't approach him. He'll sign autographs at the end, but he's playing golf. Right, you know, it's like just that's the only stipulation. It's like just just you know let him alone. But all these other guys, Rick Tockett, I went up and talked yes. to Tockett. He was awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, hockey guys are always great to talk to. I think they're the most approachable athletes in sports, uh, in, in that's not even not even close. I mean, yeah. I've had the opportunity in, in my life to uh, deliver bottled water, as, as I did for 20-something years, 
but I did so in an area of South Jersey that had a lot of athletes in it. And I had a lot of athletes as customers, and I got to know a few. Um, and the hockey players were always the best. But the athletes for of that era were so approachable, and I I just appreciated the fact that you could walk up to um, you know a guy like a, a Ron Jaworski or a Joe Theismann, and they're not going to big time you. No, not at all. And you know Joe Theismann caught some flack, or he has caught flack over the years because he was he was very talkative, right? He was somebody that I guess other players didn't care for because he ran his mouth a lot, and he there was never a camera he didn't like, right? But, you know, the, the fact is, when Scott and I met him, it was in a situation, once again, we're at this golf tournament, there's not a lot of people around, and if he if he wanted to just kind of ignore us, he could have, but right. he went out of his way to engage the two of us, right. and actually had a little bit of a conversation with us that he kind of initiated, and it was just so nice, and so that's, I mean, maybe that influences my, my ranking of Joe Theismann, <laughs> but, you know, I... I think he deserves points for for being a good guy that day. Right. And then Phil Sims with the Giants, uh, another guy who the organization was very close to giving up on early in his career. They had another quarterback on the team by the name of Scott Bruner. And Phil Sims was the quarterback with the high expectations. He was, I think, drafted number four overall. Yeah, he, and he, a high he went to a very small school, Moorhead State. Mm-hmm. So he went into New York. And imagine going from a small school in Kentucky to you know the big lights of new york city right it's got to be overwhelming as as a high draft pick yeah so uh you know it took him quite a while and the i guess the confidence of a new coach ray perkins was the coach of the giants at the time bill parcells ends up taking over bill parcells was the guy who moved lawrence taylor off the defensive line and made him a linebacker but that still rushed the passer Bill Parcells said, Phil Sims, you're, you're my quarterback. We're going to sink or swim with you. And Phil Sims appreciated that. And by the time they got to the Super Bowl in 1986 against John Elway and the Broncos, it was Phil Sims that statistically had the greatest Super Bowl game of any quarterback up to that point in NFL history. Right. In the Gen X era, that Super Bowl stands out to me. I, I remember it was you know senior year of high school and um, because – uh, at our school, we we had a dorm, and so we'd have kids from out of state come and stay in our dorm in the dorm, and, and and attend class. And so some of my friends were uh, were from lived in the dorm, and, and one of the dorm students she was from Vermont. So a whole bunch of us loaded up in a bunch of cars over our winter or over the the Super Bowl. We had we had a break, and so we went up there and watched the Super Bowl from Vermont. I just remember that there was like 20, 30 of us packed in this in this cabin up there watching the Super Bowl. And it's kind of memorable just because, you know, that was the big, you know, New York, biggest stage in the country. You have, um, you know, Bill Parcells. They had just kind of started the whole Gatorade bath thing. And I remember that was a big deal. You know, they started in the playoffs, you know, Harry Carson's would, would dump the Gatorade bucket on Bill Parcells. And so that was that was a team that I think caught a lot of people's attention just because it was Lawrence Taylor. And, you know, there, you know it was, there was a lot of flash being New York and all. Right. And that was predicated with the Bears Super Bowl championship from the season before. Right. I think... You get the the Giants and the attitude and the individualization in part based on the Bears from the season before. You know, the 49ers win in 1984, even though they dismantled Dan Marino and the Dolphins in the Super Bowl, 
not a whole lot of not a whole lot of uh, you know attention is put on the individual players. You get the the Bears who are this trash talking loudmouth. You got so many characters, and I think the Giants kind of piggybacked off that the season after, right? Because you had a lot of the same type of type of players, really. Um, I remember Phil McConkey, mm-hmm. who was a punt returner, <laughs> sure, uh, this little guy who was you know in the in the military, ends up having an NFL career for the Giants. Not a, not a bad player, but. You know, he's getting camera shots at the end of the game. Mark Bavaro. Mark Bavaro. comes in place for the Eagles later yeah. on. Uh, you know, the best tight end of his era at, at, at that at that time. Uh, they You know, they had a lot of stars. and Joe Morris, who's about my size, which, you know, a diminutive running back that's playing in the NFL and playing at a high level. Right. And then, of course, you know, Phil Sims has the game of games. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Phil Sims was the very first NFL player to after the game ends and for the commercial they go, Hey Phil Sims, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you gonna do now? I'm going to Disney World. I, I think you're right. I think he was the very I think first he was one. the very first one, yeah. And then that became an ad campaign for decades. Right. Right. Because people began to think that it was just the, the winning quarterback, right? I mean it was correct. It, the the MVP. MVP. Yeah. But it became like the winning quarterback. Yeah. No, I think Phil Sims was the first. So yeah, you know, I thought about Phil Sims. It, to me, he was he was you know kind of on the outside looking in just because I do remember the early days when he played under Ray Perkins and he was bad. Yes, and it, it's so yes he he really put it together at the end and then when he could have won that second Super Bowl which might have put him over the top he did not play he was hurt and and uh, Jeff Hostetler became mm-hmm. the uh, you know won the Super Bowl the second one the famous. One that we talked about where Scott Norwood misses the field goal. Right. Yep. All right. So that that was one of my and my one of my honorable you know one of my choices. The last one uh, I'm I'm going to make him last because he barely snuck in to the uh, to the Gen X era that we cover, which is the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm talking about Kurt Warner. I thought about Kurt, but I I didn't think he was quite. I thought he was a little beyond Gen X. Yeah. I you know technically his career happened in the 2000s, but. That 1999 season was so much fun to watch as just a football fan. The greatest show on turf. Dick Vermeil, who is a you know former Eagles coach, takes this long coaching break. Is a really good NFL TV analyst at college, a lot of college. Yeah, yeah, he did, uh, and he kind of became known as the college football guy for ABC. Mm-hmm. Really good at it. Starts to throw out these. Um, you know, kind of throws it out there. Hey, I might be interested in getting back into coaching again. Had a chance to go to the Eagles. Uh, Jeffrey Lurie passed on the opportunity and I believe hired Ray Rhodes. He did, yes. So Dick Vermeil ends up going to the St. Louis Rams and they are a, a really, a, a they're in the shambles. They went from the great years of Eric Dickerson, uh, even Jim Everett had, had a couple decent years at quarterback. But they really fell on hard times. Dick Vermeil comes in, takes his team over. Do you remember who the starting quarterback was supposed to be that year in 99? I knew you were going to ask, and, and I can picture him, and I know the name, but I'm drawing a blank right now. He currently is a CBS NFL game analyst, Trent Green. Yeah, that's it. And Trent Green, uh, because the quarterback before that was a guy by the name of Tony Banks. Sure. So Trent Green is brought in, paid pretty handsomely to be the quarterback for the Rams because they kind of felt like, 
they were ready to make take that next step as a team, but uh, they didn't feel that Tony Banks was going to get them in that direction. I think Tony ends up going to Baltimore. But then uh, he blows his knee out in the preseason, and Vermeil has no choice but to go to this uh, no-name gro- grocery store employee uh, by the name of Kurt Warner. Yeah. Went to a very small college, had a decent college career, bounced around practice teams. Got cut time and time again. I think he was with the the Packers. He was, yeah. Um, and Mike Holmgren, uh, you know, had him released. So this is a guy whose career almost never began. Finally gets this opportunity. And uh, to his credit, you know, Dick Vermeil saw what he was doing in practice and at one point says to Kurt Warner, this is, you know, you're going to run this team. We are not looking to replace you. And not only does he go out and take him to a Super Bowl championship, but wins the MVP award and goes on to a Hall of Fame career. Right. Um, but again, yet another study in perseverance. Sure. You know, here's a guy who could have given up on football many times over, just like a lot of these guys who got off to these bad starts in their career. But it's that drive to be the best or to be great at what you do that spurred a lot of these quarterbacks that we talked about today into being the quarterbacks that we remember them for. So I'm looking at my list that I have here, and I'm going to count John Elway 1, Bradshaw 2, uh, Troy Aikman 3. So of all the quarterbacks that we've talked about, only three were the number one overall pick in the draft. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So when you how much emphasis gets placed into drafting these quarterbacks high, you know, you have the greatest quarterback debate of all time on whether it's going to be, you know, you know, Tom Brady or Joe Montana mid round picks. Sure. And and not not even first rounders, not even second round picks. But how many not only just quarterbacks, but how many first round players don't live up to the expectations uh for quarterbacks, unfortunately the spotlight's even that much brighter. And there's a guy that that stands out in my mind. Um, early 2000s, Derek Carr's brother, David. Sure. Okay, David is the number one pick in the draft. He's pretty good on NFL Network. I, I like David. David goes out there with the uh, Houston Texans with no offensive line. Gets the tar beat out of him. And just gets killed game after game after game after game. And Houston gives up on him. He never really had a chance to develop as a player. You talked about how Andy Reid, on two separate occasions, you know, brought Donovan McNabb along slowly with Doug Peterson starting ahead of him. Alex Smith starts ahead of Patrick Mahomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's the way it was done. I'm not quite sure why it's got to be done this way now. Uh, I think the I think the way that was done before is better. Uh, I think it's rookie contracts because now if. You, you kind of had to make that determination quickly if this is your franchise quarterback because that second uh, contract that you're going to give out could tie your your franchise down for, for years. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of different names. I want to get your, uh, your take on them because these are some guys that had uh, some special one-year seasons. Uh, but I just want to get your thoughts on um, – on who they were. Remember Brian Sype? Sure. Brian Sype had two seasons. This was Cleveland. Two Pro Bowls and an MVP. 1980, he was the 1980 MVP in, mm-hmm. the, in the league. Uh, 1983, Bill Kenny. Remember Bill Kenny? A little bit. 
Played for Kansas City. Yeah, a little bit. He did. He yeah. I sure remember him. Yeah. Had uh, threw for forty three hundred yards in nineteen eighty three, and made his only only Pro Bowl. We already mentioned Neil Lomax. Yeah. Neil Lomax um, went to a really small school, and had one of the most prolific individual seasons of any quarterback, especially up to that point. I think between him, Dan Fouts, and Dan Marino, I think they were like one, two, and three in passing yards in a season for for quite a while. So Neil Lomax unfortunately played for a really, really bad Cardinals team in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. How about Mark Rippon? Sure. He, he won a Super Bowl. He won, uh, yeah. Uh, he won the 1991 for the, for the uh, Washington Redskins. Sure. Uh, started in the late 80s and into the 90s. Actually threw, I think it was, 12 passes for the Eagles yeah, I was gonna at say the end pl- of his career. He played for the Eagles a little bit. Uh, how about Don Mikowski? The Magic Man for the, the uh, Green Bay Packers. Correct. Made a Pro Bowl in 1989. Uh, the, the Packers in the 80s, before Mike Holmgren took over, were terrible. Yeah. Mikowski comes in, and they call him the Magic Man because they just had that one season in 1989. The 49ers... In 1989, lost only two games en route to the Super Bowl championship. One of those was to the Green Bay Packers, and Mikowski threw for like 400 yards in that game. He was incredible. Unfortunately, kind of like a Jim McMahon, could not stay healthy and ended up getting hurt and losing his job to Brett Favre Mm -hmm. a few years later. So uh, Don Mikowski. How about David Craig? Yeah, David Craig had a had a nice career in Seattle. You know, he went. You know, I forget the. He went to some tiny little college, and I don't even think they exist anymore. I don't think so. No, and he ended up having. He played a long time for the uh, Seahawks, like sure. you said, and then ended up going to the Chiefs and played with Kansas City. Marty Schottenheimer brought him in before he brought Joe Montana in to kind of turn the uh, Chiefs franchise around in the early nineties. Because you talk about perseverance, and it's a recurring theme. Uh, from this episode, it's you know, he, Craig was somebody that probably, if you looked at the uh, the, the scouting report on him, he, he probably was below average in everything, but yet he had this extremely good, nice, productive career. Yeah, he had a nice long career. Uh, Jim Everett, sure, I mentioned him before with the Rams. Um, probably Beat the more, Eagles in a playoff game. Yes, he, he's probably more famous for pushing Jim Rome on TV. Yeah. Than he is for his NFL career, but because Jim Rome called him Chris Everett, Chrissy Everett, and then but for about four seasons, um, Jim Everett was a Pro Bowl quarterback. had had a had a nice little four year run for uh, for the Rams. Vinny Testaverde mm-hmm. started out as a huge bust and didn't really turn his career around until he was about thirty three years old with Baltimore, and then had the last probably seven eight years of his career because he played till he was about forty. Had a you know kind of redeemed himself as a quarterback because, like I said early in this in this episode, he unbelievably threw thirty five picks in one year, and to the point where the Buccaneers actually considered changing the colors on the shirts of their jerseys because they thought he was throwing to the wrong team because he was colorblind, right? Yes. Yeah. So he he was somebody that could have easily packed it in. You know, he was Heisman Trophy winner. First overall pick in the draft, and incredibly high expectations, and he was not good. And, but you know, much like Phil Sims, who we talked about, came in was terrible, wasn't wasn't going to give up. You know, had the internal fortitude to fight through it, and was able to now hold his head high when the career is over. And I always kind of like those guys that 
that play deep into their you know their their late thirties, early forties because you can tell they just love the game. Yeah. You know, it's it's some some switch goes on. Like Randall did that. Somebody who early on didn't like to study film became somebody who loved the game. Right. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here soon, so I'm just going to throw out a couple more. Uh, Danny White hmm? for the Cowboys. Punter before he became the quarterback. Yeah. Another guy who unfortunately didn't have Roger Stallback's, I guess, panache, you want to call it, or his uh, ability to kind of rise in an occasion. Danny White um, took the Cowboys, I think, to three or four NFC Championship games, but he'll always be remembered as not getting to the Super Bowl. Well, he, he lost against the Eagles, and then he, he loses against the 49ers in what, you know, I said was the catch, you know, what's, what's known as the catch, where, you know, Montana wins the game at the end where he throws to Dwight Clark. Danny White was close, but, you know, not quite special. Yeah, and I, I think rather unfairly because the Cowboys under Landry in the 80s were starting to crumble. Yeah. And I think a lot of that criticism gets tossed over in Danny White's direction because it almost single-handedly happened right at the time Staubach retires, Danny White takes over. There are cracks in the formation beginning at that point. They get to the NFC Championship game. They lose to the Eagles um, in 1981. They lose to the 49ers. I mean, so they're right there. They're sure. still one of the best teams in the conference. Um, but Danny White, for you know, whatever he lacked, and he was a guy that threw you know threw the ball very well, just could not get to the team to the Super Bowl, and that he'll always be remembered for that. Right. All right. So, two more names I want to throw at you. Um, Mark Brunel had a really nice career mm-hmm. in the particularly in the 90s with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Sure. A good quarterback on a not-so-good team. Another lefty. Another lefty. And then my last one was Drew Bledsoe. Drew Bledsoe was one of those guys who actually you know, took his team to the Super Bowl in New did. England. Lost to the uh, Packers and Brett Favre in 96. But when you look back on it, the guy had a pretty good career. He made, uh, you know, made four Pro Bowls under Bill Parcells. That was certainly the high point of his career. Parcells thought enough of him to bring him to the Cowboys in the early 2000s to uh, to quarterback the team when he was the coach there. So, and that was pre-Tony Romo. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Drew Bledsoe was a guy early in his career, number one pick in the draft. Sure. Um, very highly considered or very highly thought of and uh, had, had a really nice career. He ended up bouncing around a little bit from New England to the Cowboys to Buffalo. Um, but Bledsoe himself, um, unfortunately, he's the guy that's going to be remembered for losing his job to Tom Brady with sure. New England. Yeah, and you know that is unfortunate because he had a nice career. You know, it's you know so many times those quarterbacks that get taken really, really high. It's it's rare that they actually pan out, and to have a long sustained career like Bledsoe did, go to the Super Bowl and, and put up some really nice numbers. He he has a career that uh, I, I think most people would be proud to have. All right, so as we go to wrap things up, we want to kind of circle back to the 1983 NFL draft when Sean had mentioned that there were seven quarterbacks taken in the first round. And I really think that was the singular moment when the NFL itself kind of embraced the quarterback position as the most important position on if you're trying to 
get a team started or turn a team around. It seemed like quarterback was the way to go. Um, even though in that 83 draft, there were quite a few really great players. That It's one of the best drafts ever for a first round. It, it was, yes. Uh, you know, you had mentioned John Elway going number one, Eric Dickerson. Mm-hmm. One of the best running backs of all time goes number two. Uh, Jim Covert, one of the best offensive linemen of all time, played for the Bears. He was taken in that. Uh, Bruce Matthews from the Houston Oilers. Mm-hmm. He was also a Hall of Famer. You got Jim Kelly from Buffalo. Um, you know, he was he was a Hall of Famer. Uh, Daryl Green from the Redskins was taken at the end of that uh, first first round. He was the last player taken in, was, draft, yeah. in the first round. Um, so there were a lot of good players in this particular draft, but quarterback really stood out. And the fact that Dan Marino slid all the way down to number 27 and all the quarterbacks that went in between just goes to show that teams were really putting the quarterback position as a priority. They were. It's And, and the rule changes is probably uh, – the main factor for that it's to the NFL, to their credit, discredit, however you want to look at it. They try to be very proactive with their rules. And so there's a lot of people that do not like the current NFL because it's not as violent as what it would have been in the seventies and and throughout, you know, a lot of the eighties where it was, you know, what, four yards in a cloud of dust or or, or whatever it was. And and I appreciate that kind of rock'em sock'em football. Sure. But I think that we were at the age, you know, we're at that point, I'm, I'm in eighth grade, you know, when, when that 83 class, you know, get gets drafted. And um, we are at, we, you and I, are, we just got ESPN. We're really into that. You know, I talked about how John Elway was, you know, kind of made for ESPN with all the highlights. And so it, it was time for a new era. You know, the, uh, the Gen Xers were ready for some, some excitement. And this new crop of quarterbacks while some of them did not pan out, you mm-hmm. know, the you know Todd Blackledge, you know, the great Penn State quarterback did not have a great NFL career, and he was taken pretty high in that draft. Number seven. By uh, Kansas City. He was the second quarterback taken in this draft. He was, and, you know, they so incredibly highly regarded at the time, and, you know, for one reason or another, just didn't pan out for him. But there's, there's just, you know, what do you have, the, the three Hall of Famers that came out of that, and some guys like a Tony Eason, who... Went went to the Patriots, who ended up taking his team to the Super Bowl. He did in '86. He did, um, although he was not known. He was known as being injury prone at Illinois when he yeah. was there. And I remember, I believe it was Richard Dent or Steve Michael, one of the defensive linemen from the Bears, because I have a book on the '85 Bears okay. as well. They commented that they knew. From the first snap of the game, looking at Tony Eason and the way Tony Eason was looking at them, <laughs> that he had no chance. Right. They knew he was going to be done. And he, it wasn't that he necessarily got really hurt because Steve Grogan he did come in ended up coming him. in. Yeah. It wasn't that he was more than he quit. The Bears players felt that he quit and didn't want to be a part of that game anymore because they were attacking him so, so madly. Um, but yeah, Tony Eason was another one, and we mentioned Jim Kelly, Kenny O'Brien. Kenny O'Brien to the Jets. Kenny O'Brien was taken Division II quarterback, uh, which didn't happen very often. I mean, occasionally it would. You would get a uh, you know player from a small school, and it still happens today. Um, I think Kenny O'Brien had some shoulder issues. You know, it's it's you know sometimes you 
you have quarterbacks that they just don't make it. They, you know, they just, they, they don't have the desire, the drive. Then other times it's just a matter of injury. And I think he always kind of dealt with a, a bum shoulder. And in watching that 30 for 30, where the, uh, the fans reaction to, because Marino is still on the because board, because Marino is still on the board yeah, and the Jets fans, because they knew they needed a quarterback. Sure. Uh, there was a quarterback that the Jets had that I considered putting on my list by the name of Richard Todd, mm-hmm. another Alabama quarterback that you know had a couple of decent years for the Jets. They ended up going to the AFC Championship game. As part game. of the uh, Joe Klecko, Mark Gastineau, New York the Jets. New, the New York Sack Exchange. Yeah. Uh, he was a guy that I considered because he was another guy that could throw the ball down the field. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, he was uh, accuracy was not his strength. So uh, they, the, the Jets knew they needed to get a quarterback. So they decided to go for, you know, they, they went for the home run and went for this Kenny O'Brien from Cal- Division II school out in California. He had some pretty good games. And I think Kenny O'Brien even commented in that special, like, I just got drafted ahead of Dan Marino. Are you yeah. kidding me? But there's, he said, actually, his most uh, memorable achievement as a pro player was beating Marino in an NFL game where the Jets beat the Dolphins where he actually threw for like almost 500 yards and actually outgunned Marino in that particular game because well, that will always be my best memory as a football mm-hmm. player. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Kenny O'Brien had a decent had a decent career. I mean, certainly not, not of the likes of a Jim Kelly, John Elway, or Dan Marino, but uh, you know, a guy who gave his team probably five or six decent seasons. Sure, sure, and you know, you know, it's so easy to sit back and criticize somebody for you know not having the the Hall of Fame career like the like you know the three that you just mentioned. But still, you played in the NFL. You 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 know you get you got uh, you got drafted. It's I still think it's always impressive anybody that's willing to kind of get out there and 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 play because you set yourself up for the for the criticism and it's. It's just kind of amazing that that quarterback class still, all these years later, you know, we're, we're still talking about 1983, it's still always regarded as the greatest quarterback draft in history. And I think that is the draft and kind of the era that Bill Walsh, West Coast offense, that short passing kind of offensive system, and that time where teams recognize the quarterback as the important position on the team. That has forever changed the league to the point of where it is where it is now. You look at all the all the passing statistics now that come out. It's nothing for a guy to throw for forty five hundred yards or five thousand yards and thirty something touchdowns. Back in the Gen X era, that was a major accomplishment. Uh, but in nineteen eighty three, the Philadelphia Eagles decided they were going to draft a fullback by the name of Michael Haddix. <laughs> when everyone else is opening up their offenses, we go for a fullback, a position that's not even played anymore. Nope, they got rid of the position. I think yeah. because of the Eagles drafted eighty three. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Actually, June Jones was it June Jones or James Jones uh, who went to the Detroit Lions? He was like a top ten pick as well. So things, you know, running backs are valued very differently back then. Yeah. Uh, and to the point now where, you know, where quarterbacks are taken all the time in the first round, running backs are hardly taken right. in the first round in today's NFL. So, but the, uh, that was the precursor, I think. And what makes me so grateful for the Gen X era in football is you really got to see the evolution of the quarterback position into what it is today, uh, where it has become 
such a prominent piece, and the fact that football itself, uh, you know, Sean touched on ESPN. ESPN, basically, they were like a rabid dog that wanted to get any piece that they could of the NFL and go with it. And then, uh, so up to the point of where 1987 rolls around, they finally get the NFL package. But, you know, if you wanted to watch highlights of other teams, you had to go to venues like ESPN Mm -hmm. to get those. And so a lot of times you'd see these highlights. You didn't see all the mistakes that they made. You'd see the touchdowns that they were throwing. But the quarterback position became more and more of a centerpiece for for the league. Right. And it's, it's to the point now where it's the most important position. In all of sports, it, it's it's just because of how the rules have changed. So it's the mo you know that is why whether it's Brady or Joe Montana, it's consider you know the if you're going to have anybody who's going to be the greatest player of all time, they have to be a quarterback, just because that is the one position that matters more than any other position on the field. Well, that's what we're going to wrap it up with our talk on Gen X quarterbacks, our favorites. Hopefully, uh, you know. Brought back some good memories. I know that our listening audience is overwhelmingly female. (laughs) So, ladies, I hope you enjoyed this little uh, educational trip down uh, football memory lane. Uh, If you are watching the Super Bowl, if you are a football fan, uh, I'm I'm sure no matter what, what, uh, whether you're male or female, hopefully you you enjoyed our little talk about quarterbacks. Right, so... With that being said, I'm gonna I'm gonna get everybody back on track again with our next episode. So the the topic that I have is, you know, we've done some music, and and I, I actually asked Scott beforehand whether, you know, I have a couple topics in mind, and whether he wanted music or movies because we haven't done movies for a while. So he said, Let, let's go movies because we haven't done that. So the movie that I have, and maybe this will get some of our female listeners back on track again, is I want to do a deep dive into. A classic 80s movie and part of the reason is there was a sequel that came out this past summer that really kind of set the uh, the 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 box office of fire and that of course was top gun maverick oh yeah so when what better way to kind of bring us up to speed with what's happening with maverick is to go back to the original and we'll go back to the original top gun and do a deep dive, it, you know, kind of how we might have done with 16 Candles. But this way we can incorporate a little bit of the soundtrack as well, because I think the soundtrack was very vital to the success of the movie as well. Absolutely, and I, and I agree with you 100%. I, I think that's where you started to see music, musical influence in culture, whether it was commercials, TV, movies. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think I think the soundtrack and the sound of it is every bit as important as the storyline. So we're gonna we're gonna be our own version of MTV right here, where we're gonna combine both music and movies together and and go deep into Top Gun and kind of set the stage for those of you who you know don't remember it and only watch Top Gun Maverick. We'll give you a little background. All right. So looking forward to that. Um, yeah, Sean. Thanks for your list of uh, Gen X quarterbacks. We hope you enjoyed it and. We will talk to you next time as we talk about the the movie Top Gun. I can't wait to do a deep dive into that. So for Gen X Playback, again, we thank everybody for listening to our little podcast. And uh, we hope you tune in next time. So for Gen X Playback, I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we'll talk to you later. See ya. Go Birds.